want to encourage you to take your Bibles and find the little book of Philippians in chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 10 in just a moment. Philippians chapter 4 and then verse 10. The title of this morning's message is Experiencing Contentment. For the last several weeks, in fact, for most of the last two months, we have, we have been receiving and discussing and studying different ways of looking at the human heart that God made you and me to experience Him at the level of our heart. And if we are to be the people of the burning heart that we first discussed in August, we've got to understand some of the obstacles and things that get in the way of experiencing Christ where He wants us to know Him. Christians are not perfect people. I think most of us know that. We don't claim to be perfect and we are not perfect people. But we are different from the rest of the human race. We are an inhabited people. That when we put our trust in Christ, the Spirit of Christ comes to live inside of us, inside of our heart. And He is there to sit on the throne of our heart and to be our King, to be the one who guides us and directs us, to be the one in whom we have everything that we could possibly want or possibly need. Sometimes when we look at the character qualities of a Christian, we think of things like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, my favorite description. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We look at a list like that and we think, well, I need to be more like that particular quality. I need more joy in my life. I need more long-suffering in my life. I need more self-control in my life. And we go to God and we say, God, give me more self-control. God, give me the ability to exercise long-suffering. Give me these things as if God was existing outside of us and giving us these qualities in little packets and in that way we were becoming more like Jesus and growing as we recognized our deficiencies and then sought to acquire them through practice and hard effort and work. And nothing could be a grosser misrepresentation of how Christians grow. Contentment is one of those areas of the human heart that I think best helps us understand how God wants you and I to grow. Because in order for us to experience contentment, it sort of opens up all the truth that I believe you and I need in order to grow spiritually. And so as we turn our attention to this passage, we're going to be focusing on the word content and on the idea of contentment. Look at verse 10, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound 
and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians essentially as an oversized thank you note. Would that all of our thank you notes sounded like this. And he wrote for a couple of reasons. One, to assure them that he was okay. He was writing them from prison. They knew he had been arrested. And I'm sure they were concerned with his welfare. And he was assuring them, if you read chapter 1, that he was okay. The other reason he wrote was to thank them for their recent gift, a financial gift that was helping him and helping to sustain him in his ministry and in his work. And he had received this gift and he wanted to thank them for it. And almost immediately, he wants them to understand that his interest in them was more than their gift. It wasn't about their gift. It wasn't that he particularly needed them in order to survive. And so he wasn't like someone who came and visited a church for a couple of weeks and then depended on continued offerings as he traveled all over in order to be satisfied in his own life. He says, no, I don't need those things to be content. And he takes a moment and he just pauses to teach them something about contentment. Now, you don't have to look very far in our culture to see that we are a discontented society. We'll say more about this in a moment, but for most of us, the expression of discontent, I would say probably 100% of us, began as, as babies. And when babies are discontented, they are very good about letting you know that they are not content. And having been through this six times with my own and now with a grandchild, we understand that expressing discontentment is a way of communicating for babies. And there are only so many things. It's a process of elimination to know why they are unhappy. You know, we're dirty. We're, we need entertainment. Uh, this hurts, or whatever the case may be. It's only a process of elimination. Now, that's cute in a baby to a certain extent, but, but when we're still doing that, even as young children, it's less attractive, and it can actually be disturbing. And what we discover, even as children, is that Discontent can be the source of many of our troubles, if not most of our troubles. When I was young, I guess about four years old, we went to the local quick mart. We called it the Ice House in South Texas. We would go to the Ice House and pick up some things on the way home. My mom was a single mom. We would stop there, and typically she would let me get something, a piece of candy, something that would make me content. On this particular occasion, I wanted some double bubble chewing gum. Double bubble chewing gum had a comic strip in it and I felt that I needed that in order to be happy. And she said, no, we're not going to do that today. I don't know what her problem was. <laughs> she had a job. I didn't. It wasn't that much money. I wasn't even thinking. I was just thinking I need this to be happy. And so while she was up getting what we needed for our house, I found a box of double bubble gum and somehow managed to stick it in my pocket. And we went home. Now we lived in a mobile home and I don't know why or what possessed me to think that I could sin in secret in that small space, but I took that box of double bubble gum. I didn't go to my room. I didn't go to a spare room. I didn't go to the living room. I went to her bedroom 
sat down in front of her dressing mirror and watched myself chew the entire box of double bubble gum. Because in order to read the next comic, I had to chew another piece. Oh, it's getting really bad. Four-year-old with a mouth full of gum. My mother walks in, and I was busted. There was a box that was empty. There were a pile of double bubble gum wrappers on the floor, and a very contented four-year-old or five-year-old boy with a wad of gum in his mouth. She called me by my full name and put me in the car and drove me back to the Quick Mart, a.k.a. the Ice House, and made me apologize to the proprietor for theft. I never stole anything again in the store. I was humbled by that experience. I was also learning something about discontent. You see, discontent is that thing inside of us. It's a manifestation of self that says, in order to be happy, I need something that's not in me. I need something that's outside of me. And depending on how I respond to that desire for something that's outside of me will determine many aspects of my life, my marriage, my home, my relationships at work, my relationships with people even at church, my relationships with people I work with will all be affected by how seriously I pursue the things that I want that are outside of myself. And discontent is an expression of that. And so we want to focus on what Paul has to say to the people in Philippi. He has no particular criticism for this church. This is one of the rare letters where he does not talk to them about a particular sin problem in the church. He offers no significant criticism to them. There are a couple of ladies that are having trouble getting on the same page. You can read about them earlier in chapter 4, but beyond one verse where he addresses those women directly, most of the letter is very pleasant. And he's teaching about contentment at this moment. So the first thing I want you to see about experiencing contentment is this. Contentment is something that we learn. Contentment is something that we learn. Look at the last half of verse 11. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And there's our word in verse 11, the word content. Now we think that the word content or contentment, we tend to think of that, the English word, the way that I feel on Sunday afternoon after dinner and uh, if I don't have anything else particularly that I have to do that afternoon, I have a chair. And I'll climb up into that chair, I'll push back in that chair, and I'll fold my hands kind of like this, and I'll pass out. And I'm thinking, thank you, Lord, for my chair. I love this chair, and I feel satisfied. And I feel content. And a lot of times we think of contentment as this feeling of satisfaction. And there's some truth to that. But the word that's being used here is much more significant and gives you and I a clue as to what contentment really is. The word content here means to be self-satisfied. Not just satisfied. Because if you took away my chair, I wouldn't be content anymore. At least not for that moment. What'd you do to my chair? 
Uh, but this kind of contentment that's described here means self-satisfied. A better way of thinking of it is, is self-contained. Self-contained. In ancient times, when an enemy would attack a city, it would have walls, and they would have defenders on the walls. But if they laid siege to that city, their capacity to survive that military incursion depended on their ability to be self-contained inside the walls of that city. They had to have all their fluids, their drinks, their food, their grain, all had to be satisfactory, had to be stored up, had to be contained into those walls because nobody was leaving, nobody was coming in. And so they had to have a fresh water supply and they had to have the food. And as long as they were self-contained, they could not be attacked their walls would not be breached, and they would be safe. And he's saying, I've learned to be content. Paul's saying, I've learned not to need anything outside of myself. I've learned that inside myself, I have everything I need. I am self-contained. Outer circumstances have no effect on me. To help illustrate that today, um, I brought, this is not a real one, but it's a make-believe one, so, so think about it with me, okay? I'm going to set this up here. Say, what is that? Well, this is a, a model of a terrarium. Use your imagination. Now, in a true terrarium, once you seal it off, you have, you have your, um, all the items in there, the plants, the, the soil, the moisture. You have everything necessary once you seal it off for those plants to continue to live and to thrive with nothing else being added to the terrarium. That's the neat thing about terrarium. Self-contained. Doesn't need anything from the outside. Sunlight. And what Paul's saying is that when I'm content, I'm like this. I'm like a terrarium. I don't need anything from the outside to make me happy. I have everything that I need already contained on the inside. And so the first thing that we see, and the point that he's making here, is that contentment is something that we have to learn. That's what he says in verse 11. For I've learned whatever state I am to be content. Now, if we don't learn it, what happens? If I don't learn contentment, what's going to happen to me? Well, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the word is used. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness, your way of life be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. And so he is drawing a contrast between being covetous, desiring something, always needing more, wanting something, a contrast between being covetous and being content. Right now, everybody here in the room, including your pastor, is either content or we are coveting something. We are wanting something beyond ourselves. Discontent, Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, is the same as being covetous, not being satisfied, not being self-contained, always wanting something outside of yourself. This affects us in our homes. It affects us in marriages. We may marry for love, this person's going to make me happy. This person's going to satisfy me. And then we discover that there are areas where they are deficient. 
And we might become discontent because this person doesn't meet all of my needs. And by the way, no human being can meet all of your needs. It's not going to happen. If you're a husband, you think your wife's going to meet all your needs, you're wrong. If you're a wife, you think your husband's going to meet all your needs, you're wrong. No human being can meet all of your needs. And we become discontent. And we begin thinking, well, this, this person's a dud. Maybe somebody else would be better. And, and our hearts shift. And we think of falling out of love and falling in love. But it's really a matter of being content or being discontent. Being content or being covetous. And this happens in the workplaces. This happens in, um, in relationships. This happens everywhere in our culture. This is a curse. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. We know that. We've talked about that. But the heart, one of the hearts of what happened, one of the things that they did is God said, here you can eat of every tree of the garden, but one tree, one tree you can't eat of. What happened? That wasn't sufficient. And Eve became discontented. And Adam became discontented with what God had provided, even though it was gracious and it was rich. And so this disease, this lack of contentment, ultimately resulted in the fall of the human race. Traveling for 10 years, visiting churches, visiting pastors. I can't tell you how many times I would meet with a pastor and working for the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. I had it on occasion where sometimes even before I spoke in the church, the pastor would hand me his resume. He wasn't content. Now sometimes he may have had good reason for that, but he was not content. So this isn't something that just plagues the rest of humanity. It, it, it affects everybody. And the idea is that I'm not happy here. If I can get there, I'll be happy. If I can move from this set of circumstances and change my circumstances and get to a certain set that meet my requirements, I'll be satisfied and I'll be content. And that's a deception. When you are discontent, it's very hard, if not impossible, to experience joy. Because you believe there's something else that you've got to have in order to be happy. And so contentment becomes something very precious and unfortunately pretty rare among us. Now Paul, when he was writing this, had every reason to be discontent. Every reason. If you go back to chapter 1, he's writing from prison. He is there unfairly. And he has been thrown in prison. He's in chains. And if anybody had a right to be discontented with the circumstances, it was Paul. What does he say? I've learned whatever state I am to be content. Here he is sitting in prison. And if you go back and read chapter 1, what does he say about it? He says, because of my chains, the entire palace guard knows about Christ. Every guard that comes in here knows about Christ. Because of my chains and because I'm here. And because of I'm here, because I'm in chains, he said Christians have become more bold in sharing their faith. And so not only have the people in the prison heard about Jesus, but more people outside the prison are hearing about Jesus. And so Paul is describing contentment, but he also is describing the power of that contentment. Well, first, it's something that we learn. There's a second thing. How do we learn contentment? Well, contentment is taught by God. Contentment is taught by God. I have to learn it, but he is my teacher. He is my instructor. Look again at verse 12. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. 
Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now when verse 11 he used the word learned, he used the standard word for learning most of us will be familiar with. I'm taught something, I learn it. But here the word's a little different in verse 12. When he says, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, he uses a word that was associated with the mystery cults of his day. A mystery cult was a religious group that was very secretive, and they had truth that other people didn't have. They had extraordinary truth, deep truth about the universe, about life, and about the world. And, and for you to really know what they knew, you had to be initiated into their secret cult, their mystery cult. And that word for learning is this word for being initiated. He says, I have been initiated. I have this come to know. I have been instructed in this secret of how to be full and how to be hungry. I was talking to the deacons during our, our meeting earlier this morning. I said, it seems to be all the rage right now to expose secrets that people have. You don't have to read very far in the news to see that one person's exposing secrets, somebody else is exposing their secrets, and we're all excited about secrets. WikiLeaks, their whole reputation is built on exposing secrets. If I stand in the grocery line or the store line, which I try to do as little as possible, but when I stand in those lines, the little ads on the newspapers are all about secrets. Now, I don't ever read those, well, I don't ever buy any to take home. You can, you can read a lot just standing in line. You know, this, you know, the doctor's secret to weight loss, like they've been holding out on us. And um, they have all kinds of stuff in there about secrets. Well, Paul's saying, I have learned a secret. And God has taught it to me. It's passive. He's saying, I have been instructed in this particular secret. So how does he teach us? the secret. Well, obviously, as you look at verse 12, it comes from real life experiences. I know how to be abased, how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I've learned to be full, to be hungry, to abound, and to suffer need. God teaches us about contentment. How? Not through just reading about it, not through someone just telling you about it. We learn about contentment in real life, real life experiences. And that's how God teaches us. Some of us right now are experiencing circumstances that we don't like. And we're experiencing a lack of contentment. What is God doing? He's got you in school. He's got you in school. This is what happened to Job in the Old Testament. Job learned through his experience that God could be trusted. The devil challenged God to a test. If you go back and read Job chapter 1, uh, God had blessed Job. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had thousands of camels. He had thousands of sheep. He had great wealth, great prosperity. And the devil came in and said, and God said, have you seen my servant Job? And the devil said, you know, he wouldn't be your servant if it wasn't for all the blessings that you've given him. He wouldn't be your servant if you weren't protecting him and hedging in what he had. And God said, well, let's, let's, let's try this out. And so the devil was given permission to attack Job's stuff to affect Job's circumstances. When you go back and read that text, you read about a marauding group of Sabaeans, people. And it says they stole 500 donkeys, 500 pairs of oxen and servants. 
And while the guy's reporting that the Sabaeans have come and done all of this, while he's still talking, it says another person comes in and says, fire from the sky fell and burned up 7,000 sheep and all the servants. And I'm the only one that survived. And while he's still talking, another servant runs in and says, the Chaldeans, not the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans came and stole 7,000 camels and killed all the servants, and I'm the only one that survived. And while he's still talking, another one comes in and says, a great wind has come and hit the house where his kids were, and all seven of his sons and all three of his daughters were killed. In Job chapter 1, verse 20, and by the way, if you ever wonder what the devil can do, go back and read Job chapter 1. Sabaeans, Chaldeans, fire from heaven, a great wind all attributed to the activity of the evil one. Well, after all of this happened, and no more messengers showed up, in Job chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Obviously, he's grieving. And he fell to the ground. What did he do? And worshipped. And worshipped. Job is a fast learner in the school of contentment. Because that is how we respond. When you and I experience circumstances that we don't like, how should we respond? Every circumstance in your life is another opportunity to trust God. Everything that happens to you is another opportunity to trust God. Nothing comes into your life as an accident or an oversight. God has a purpose for every circumstance. And it's a new opportunity to trust him. So God takes us to school. And there are two major courses of study in the school of contentment. You need to hear this. There's hungry and needy 101. Hungry and needy 101. The second one is abounding and full 101. Sign me up for that one. I mean, that's the one that fills up first. Abounding and full 101. Lord, lay it on me. You know, I'd like to try some of that where I'm full and I'm completely satisfied and all my needs are met and I feel that wealth and I feel that safety and security from belongings. About, and, and Paul says, I've learned how to live when that happens to me. He says, but I've also learned how to live because I've taken the course called Hungry and Needy 101. In order to suffer hunger, in order to experience need, means that there's a moment in your life where you think you need something, you know you need something, and you don't have it. Sometimes we have this idea that if I follow Christ, I'm never going to need anything ever again. I'm never going to be needy, never going to be hungry, never going to be in crisis, never going to have a problem. And Paul says, no, the road to learning contentment, when God teaches contentment, is he allows us to lose those things. All the other things that we put our trust in. And, uh, you know, we get into that school, we get into that classroom, and God comes into our mind, He comes to our heart, and He says, He says, I'm going to teach you contentment. And we say, God, I'm, I'm content right now in you. I love you. I love you with all my heart. I think that you are everything that I need, everything I could possibly want. God says, okay, well, let's, let me touch some things. Let me touch this thing in your life. And immediately, whatever that is, we look at that and we say, oh God, I don't think I can live without that. And God says, well, let's find out. And he takes it away. And until we have that experience of external things being removed, 
we do not discover the truth that I can be self-contained and completely self-sufficient because Christ lives in me. But we only learn that as God teaches it to us through our life experiences. The world measures you and I by what we have. We look at people, I, I hate to pick on preachers, I love preachers by the way, they're my favorite people by the way, they really are. I love preachers. You should love preachers too. But I visited some churches, pastor tell me we got 10 doctors in our church. I'm thinking, so what? But, but, but what they're saying in that is that they are measuring people by certain standards. And the world does that, and it's infected the church as well. We measure people by the way they dress, the cars they drive, the shoes they wear. I, I had a dear friend. He always measured people. He always looked at their shoes. That was just his thing. Were their shoes shined up? Did they take care of their shoes? I mean, he, he, he could tell their whole life story by looking at their shoes. And the world does that. But every, and everything in the world is designed to cause you to be discontent. You can't watch a television program without being bombarded every six to seven minutes by a commercial that says, you need something and here it is. We watched a program last week, Gail and I did, and we just about turned it off, not because the show was particularly bad, but because we couldn't stand all the commercials. Every six to seven minutes, two to three minutes of commercials. I timed it. Something to do. The world's way of contentment is increasing your possessions. God's way of contentment is increasing your satisfaction in Him. Meeting all of your desires in Him. If we're self-contained, then having everything doesn't add anything to us. And losing everything doesn't take anything away from us if we are self-contained. The only way we learn to rely on God is when He is all we have to rely on. And that is the explanation for some of the things that you and I are experiencing in the school that He is taking us through. Well, here's the third thing, last thing. Contentment is discovering that Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. And, and we take it out of context. We use it to describe, it's not necessarily untrue, that I can do whatever God asks me to do because Jesus lives in me. But in context, what is he saying? Every circumstance, I can, I can deal with it. Put me in prison, I can deal with it. Take away my health, I can deal with it. Take away my family, I can deal with it. And God forbid that any of us should ever have to experience that. But he says, I can deal with it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How does he strengthen us? From within. The word means he empowers us from within. So how does he do it? How does he do it? He doesn't do it through a formula. He does it through a relationship. It's not a step one, step two, step three. Contentment is found in a relationship with a person, not a thing. Coming to know Jesus Christ. You see, spiritual growth is not God adding something to us a little bit at a time. 
what you and I discover through this teaching about contentment is that spiritual growth is discovering what God has already given me in Jesus Christ. That when he saved you and Jesus Christ came to live inside you, God had given you in that moment everything, everything, everything he was ever going to give you as his child is in Jesus Christ. In him, it says in Colossians, all the fullness of God dwells. He's the creator. He is the one who supplies everything that we need. He is the most powerful one in the universe. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Everything that we need, God has already provided us in Christ. And we say, oh God, I need some help on this thing today or that thing today, and we're thinking God's going to make a deposit into our life. Listen, he bankrupted heaven to send Jesus to rescue you and me. He took the most precious person in heaven and he sent him into this world to become a human being, to die for our sins on the cross and to be raised from the dead to prove that death could be conquered and that sins could be forgiven. And when you trust him, he comes to live inside you. All the fullness, all of the life of God, all of the wisdom of God, the very mind of God, the power of God is in you if you know Christ. What you and I need to discover to be content is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to meet our need, to take care of us, to lead us, to guide us, and to satisfy every desire in our heart. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? Does he live inside your heart? In just a moment when we stand and sing, I want to invite you to come to Christ if you've never trusted him. I want to encourage you to own him, to receive him. Pastors and I will be standing down front and, and if you're ready, if it's time, you know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and you know that you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Come. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Whether you're in the balcony, we know you're there. If you're downstairs, we know you're there. Come. And no one's going to laugh at you. No one's going to make fun of you. No one's going to ridicule you. This church loves you, uh, their people. And they will give you their love freely because Christ has loved us. And so I want to invite you to come. If you're struggling this morning with your circumstances and um, contentment, sounds like a dream and you just want someone to pray with you and say I want to get into that school and I want to understand what God is doing and I want to receive the satisfaction in Christ that is mine my birthright as his child as his son as his daughter and I invite you to come and just let us pray with you and uh, ask God to reveal himself to you and what he has already given you in Jesus Christ Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking so clearly through the Apostle Paul centuries ago about where we're living right now. And we ask you, Almighty God, to come and to wake us up to the treasure, the richness, the wealth that is ours. That every longing we have is a longing ultimately for you. 
that every desire we have can only be satisfied by you. Thank you for teaching us, growing us in contentment. Father, as you work among us, we want to be sensitive to your leading. We want to say yes as you guide us in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.